everyone. Welcome to Live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center in conjunction with Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And now I'm presenting your host for tonight, Executive Director Jonathan Haupt. And thanks for being with us. Welcome, everybody, to Live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center here on the Authors on the Air Global Network. I would like to, if we can arrange for this, for that theme music to play every single time I walk into a room. I don't know who I can talk to about that, but Pam can do something about that. That'd be a really nice feature. Very excited to have on the program tonight Anthony Grooms, a writer I have known for a while in different contexts, but there are layers upon layers upon layers to Tony Grooms, and I feel like in many ways I'm still getting to know him, and that's what we'll get to do over the course of our conversation this evening Uh, For those of you who joined us on the program last month, um, I went just a few seconds over my time with author Kathleen Rogers and our producer Pam Stack's solution has been to give me an extra 15 minutes of time. So we have an hour conversation tonight, which uh, I think will be just enough to scratch the surface of Tony's fantastic novel, The Vain Conversation. So by way of very quick introduction for those of you unfamiliar with Tony Grooms, let me say, that Tony is the author of the novel Bombingham and the short story collection Trouble No More, both of which were winners of the William Smith Book Award for Fiction and both adopted for study by universities. His novel Bombingham was also a Washington Post notable book and was chosen as a citywide common read for Washington, D.C. Tony has taught writing and American literature in Ghana and Sweden and since 1994 at Kennesaw State University, where he also directs the professional writing program. And he's lectured widely on American literature and culture, especially topics relating to narratives of the American civil rights movement. Tony is a Fulbright Fellow and a Yado Fellow and a Hurston Wright Foundation Legacy Award finalist. And were that not enough, also an Arts Administration Fellow from the National Endowment for the Arts. His second novel, Vain Conversation, which will be largely the topic of our conversation tonight, was published in spring 2018 by Pat Conroy's Story River Books, an imprint of the University of South Carolina Press that Pat Conroy and I created together. The Vain Conversation has since earned honors from the Georgia Center for the Book, the Women's National Book Association, the TRIO Multi-Arts Program, and the Black Caucus of the American Library Association. Tony is also one of the 67 contributing writers to Our Prince of Scribes, Writers Remember Pat Conroy, a multi-award winning anthology I've had the pleasure of discussing before on the Authors on the Air Network and something we may get to tonight as well. You can learn even more than that about Tony at his website, anthonygrooms.com. But if you'd like to learn more from Tony rather than just about Tony, we've got an opportunity coming up to do that too, because Tony has agreed to teach a point of view fiction workshop online for the Pat Conroy Literary Center. And that's coming up next week, Tuesday, July 22nd. You can find more information about that on the Conroy Center website, our Facebook page, or Eventbrite. So with all of that said, which admittedly is a lot, Tony, thanks so much for being on the show tonight. I really appreciate it. It's a great pleasure to be here with you, Jonathan. You have a great radio voice. And I like that theme music, too. I might uh, have to have it accompany me. You need to commission your own. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> And you've sort of had that experience, too. I was going to save this for later in the program, but I mentioned TRIO in the course of your introduction, and that's a program put on by our friend uh, Sherry Smith from um, Working Title Farm. 
and it's a, a program that's in partnership uh, with the Southern Independent Booksellers Alliance. So every year a bunch of books are selected and the vein conversation was one of those, the result of which is that a song is written about that book, written and performed. So you have a sort of theme song, not for yourself, but at least for the book already. Uh, and yeah. remind me of the, t- the title of that song. It was Eric Erdman, I think, but the title was what? Yeah. Eric, uh, where Eric we, where, Erdman, and it's where, where Do We Go From Here, I think is the title. I'll have to, yeah. have to look. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. it's a wonderful, it, it reminds me of uh, the Bob Dylan folk era um, uh, when Bob Dylan is singing more socially relevant songs. So of all the songs written about all of your books, how does that one stack up in the, in the hierarchy? Of, um... <laughs> well, it, it is the best one. <laughs> uh, well, it's yeah. the only one, but yeah, it's the best one. So <laughs> by, by, by virtue of its rarity, it wins the competition. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, um, you know, a couple of things that have happened since we agreed uh, since you very graciously agreed to be on the show, we've lost some significant figures in the civil rights movement. We lost them. We've not lost their, their words or their legacy. And that's become a framework that I want to get to tonight as well. But, uh, you know, I want to start where where our lives intersected with Story River Books, uh, which is an imprint uh, that Pat and I created together at USC Press. And your manuscript for the Vain Conversation uh, came in over the transom, a lovely poet. Uh, publisher term, meaning it sort of showed up under its own power, um, thanks to you. And it really convinced me when it came in that uh, we were doing good work because we were attracting uh, phenomenal writers, writers above and beyond the folks I thought we would be, be getting to look at at that point. Um, and, but this was a project that was not quick in the making, as I understand it. This is a project that, that you had been working on for something like 20 years. So could you tell us just a little bit about sort of the origin story for being conversation? Yeah, and, and actually it was more like 27 years. Uh-huh. So, uh, <laughs> uh, luckily, I had other things to do other than just work on a manuscript for 27 years. So it was... Uh, uh, persistent work, but not necessarily consistent work on the uh, on the uh, manuscript. Well, this all started uh, one Sunday morning, uh, sitting and reading the Atlanta Journal and Constitution, when I uh, read a story about a man named Clinton Adams, who had uh, been a witness uh, as a child to the 1946 uh, lynching of a of two black couples. Uh, in uh, Walton County, uh, Georgia, not too far from Atlanta. And what was really catching uh, about that uh, article, uh, uh, unfortunately, it wasn't so much that people were lynched, uh, that's a very common occurrence, but that um, uh, for some, at that point, I think it was 40 years, uh, Adams had had borne what he had witnessed but had not been able to talk about it. He had been told as a child to be quiet about it, and uh, his own uh, testimony, he said that he he felt um, that uh, people in the community were, might harm him if he talked about it. He wandered. He seemed to have been aimless uh, uh, in his life. And, and that was what attracted me to writing uh, about a character like that. And I must say right off, 
that this is not a, a historic a history of that event, though it is a historical novel. Uh, I use the event as a springboard and create around it my own characters. Uh, so uh, as a way to explore this idea of the witness without a voice and the uh, the, the his journey towards or his seeking of uh, what he calls redemption. Did you ever think about reaching out to the real Clinton Adams or was the, the news article and sort of the, the thinking about this, this person enough to get the, the manuscripts going? Well, I imagine at some point or the other, I might've thought about it, but I, but it really didn't serve the purpose of my uh, book so much. I wanted to, I guess, explore these ideas as they related to me more than I wanted to explore them as they related to him. Uh, by mm-hmm. this time, of course, he did have a voice. He was appearing in the Atlanta Journal and, and Constitution. And uh, and soon after the book was published, some 27 years ago, uh, he there were a couple more articles uh, in the uh, Constitution about him, now uh, a man in his 80s. Uh, so... Um, uh, so, you know, he has uh, been able in, in the last uh, uh, 30 years or so to speak out. Um, but what interested me was this idea of redemption. Uh, we often talk about redemption uh, in literature, uh, that a book is redemptive or a movie is redemptive. And I wondered about that term since uh, redeeming is a way you pay for something. Uh, so what what does that mean when the novel is redemptive? Does it mean that that uh, you uh, you suffer through it? Uh, it's a, it's a part of your repentance to read the novel. <laughs> but uh, so those are some of the you know the questions that that rose uh, in my mind uh, around this issue, mm-hmm. and of course the larger issue about uh, redemption for race crimes in this country. Uh, uh, how does the United States reach a, a state of truth and reconciliation? Uh, is it even possible? Uh, so, uh, so those are some of the themes and ideas that got that launched me into this uh, recreation of the historical event. Mm-hmm. It, it's a, a narrative that, in so way, challenges the idea of redemption. Is redemption possible? And, and I love what you say about redemptive narratives in, in fiction and film, because they tend to end on a, a happy note, a hopeful note, and that separates the viewer, the reader, from a responsibility to then act on whatever the intended message of the story might be. And you, uh, you know, deserved or otherwise, seem to have this reputation for the uh, the hopeless ending, the ending that does not <laughs> give you the, the, the bright and happy. But, uh, you know, I'm going to be very protective of, uh, of mm. the major twists and turns of the novel, but mm. I will say that it ends quite literally on a hopeful note. The very last word of the novel is, in fact, hope. So uh, you want to speak to, to that a little bit. Is this, in mm. fact, a hopeful novel in your mind? Um. It it is a novel in which a character struggles for redemption. So the hope is that one can struggle for redemption. Mm. Well, you, you don't always get it, um, but you keep going. Uh, and importantly, mm-hmm. my character does say that. 
that uh, you know he, he's trying again. Uh, but um, uh, a funny, a funny story was uh, after my first novel was published, the, the very first review I read uh, described it as a uh, a novel about the destruction of hope. <laughs> and mm. <laughs> uh, immediately, in my you know, my heart fell to my feet, and uh, I thought the first thought, uh, uh, interestingly enough, uh, was, "Well, there goes the sales." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I, I I don't think that's true about the novel uh, or about really about any of my work. But I will mm-hmm. say that uh, uh, my stories don't give us an easy uh, an easy path, an easy pass uh, to uh, to redemption. But hopeful, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. you, but you have to work for redemption, and I think it's uh, it's something you do every day. And I'm calling it redemption here, but uh, maybe I'll read a passage later in which one character says it's really not redemption that we want; it's salvation. Um, mm-hmm. That you know, we ultimately want to uh, want to be saved, and, uh, but um, uh, but we have shorthanded that idea to just say, oh, let's uh, let's seek redemption, or, or this is a redemptive novel, or whatever. And I really agree with you that. So often, redemptive novels end on a happy and easy note, and that redemption sometimes really is just a shortcut to say that this novel has a happy ending. Uh, and, uh, you know, whether that's deserved or not, is, it depends on the novel, I guess. Well, your work, this novel certainly uh, is indicative of this, leaves the workload on the reader in the end. There's, you know, if, if you... Hope is out there. You have to go find it. Salvation is out there. You have to go find it. So uh, before I turn you loose to do a reading, which I absolutely want you to do, let's talk just very quickly about the structure of the novel and and the perspectives that we get along the way. You've turned Clinton Adams, uh, the inspiration, uh, into into Lonnie Henson, who we encountered at two different points in the novel. But He's not the only uh, character that we get. So would you just sort of quickly take us through the structure and and the points of view? Uh, yes, the, the, the structure evolved over those 27 years, and typical of uh, the way I approach a big project, I'm all over the place, and I overwrite, and I have way too much going on, sometimes novels within novels, and then I have to pare it back. And so uh, at one point, this novel went out to my agent with, I think, uh, seven or eight points of view, seven or eight hmm. characters that were being focused on. And and the response was, that's all interesting, but uh, pair it back. And so I paired it back to three, uh, and they are uh, Lonnie as a uh, child, and then Lonnie at the end, Lonnie as a young man in his 30s. Uh, and in between, we get uh, Bertrand, who's one of the victims, and also Mr. Jack's uh, who is um, uh, uh, well? It's really left up to the reader, I think, to discover uh, whether or not, or how involved he is in the murder. Uh, but I wanted him to be somewhat of a. Uh, I wanted to be somewhat ambiguous about uh, his role, uh, uh, in large part because I think a lot of people um, play roles around. Um, 
oppressive situations in which we don't get involved enough in preventing those uh, those situations. And so in some ways, we uh, aid the oppression by not opposing it. And and that mm-hmm. was, I think, mm-hmm. very true of the Jim Crow period. And it's probably true right now. Certainly. there's uh, There are consequences to our actions. There are consequences to our inactions. And your novel mm-hmm. explores both of those. Mm-hmm. So each part, uh, even though there is, uh, in my mind at least, an overarching narrator, each part uh, focuses as a third-person point of view on uh, the the uh, the three characters. And I actually, in some ways, think of uh, the older Lonnie as a, as a fourth character um, because he has already been through several changes that, uh, as a, as a young adult. Um, so, uh, so that's how the novel is, is put together. When in, in setting up this per, multiple perspectives on Lonnie, or the two perspectives on Lonnie, I wonder were you also thinking of what you had done in Bombingham with Walter Burke and his sort of movements back and forth between the present and memory, childhood and adulthood? Is this is this a structure that you like? Is this something that you're drawn to? It uh, It is, um, or at least for those two novels. Uh, I can think of several things I've worked on where that hasn't been the case. Um, mm-hmm. But it works for fiction writing um, because um, uh, time, of course, uh, is that the, how you perceive time, how you use time in a narrative is really the the nuts and bolts of narrative. And one of the things that uh, well, we have the choice of having chronological, but I think for uh, particularly for a literary novel, it is uh, more interesting if we can create characters who are acting in the present, but also understand what their what past brought them to that present, and therefore the mm-hmm. novel shifts back and forth uh, in time. And of course, many uh, many writers. Uh, uh, want to explore uh, a community perspective, so they um, they also introduce multiple points of view. Um, the vain conversation really is, uh, in as much as it is a multiple point of view novel, is uh, perhaps the only, well, really, as I think of it, about it, the only work that I've ever done that has multiple points of view. <laughs> Let's uh, talk about the title quickly, and then uh, I would love mm-hmm. for you to read from the book, because this is a title that you fought for. This is one uh, that uh, is uh, you, you are very attached to and have some good mm-hmm. thoughts on. So I'd love for you to tell me how you arrived at the at the novel, or at the title of the novel, and sort of what it what it means, how it's weighted. Well, I um, uh, in part of my process, the title evolved. Um, it, uh, I think there were five or six other titles before I got to this one. And uh, the idea came actually from a novelist named Ravi Howard, who has a, a novel called Like Trees Walking. And I was talking to him, and where did you get that title? And he said, from the Bible. You know, where did you get it in the Bible? But anyway, there's a phrase in the Bible that, from which he exerted uh, a clause uh, to come up with the title. And so that gave me the idea that maybe I could do something like that. Uh, so I went to Google, and I put in um, uh, Holy Bible Redemption <laughs> to the search engine. 
And what do you know? <laughs> uh, a lot of verses came up. Uh, so I had, a, a, you know, practically the entire New Testament. Uh, but um, <laughs> but uh, as it turned out, um, Christianity is a lot about redemption uh, and salvation. Uh, but anyway, I came upon uh, a, a, a verse from the first epistle of Peter. Uh, for as so much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. And so what does that vain conversation mean? Uh, And uh, in this uh, context, at least the way I interpret it, it means a tradition, Um, the um, the passing on of, in this case, um, uh, sin. And I thought, well, that's Mm -hmm. really appropriate for this exploration of uh, race crime that I'm doing uh, in my novel, but it also puns, of course, with the conversations that we have around race. And I think we have an awful lot of vain conversations around race, but we also have some very productive conversations around race. And I think uh, in this, these, this past month, we have been having some really great conversations around race. So, um, um, you know, so all all is uh, not without hope. Uh, so that's the way the the title uh, came to me, uh, and yes, uh, uh, I did I did want that title. You did you made a strong case for it, and uh, a, a case that won in the end. And I can't imagine the book with a different title now. So I'm so glad you stood up for your choice. So uh, I think we you know without knowing exactly what you want to read tonight, I think we may have done a decent setup for it. So does this seem like mm-hmm. a good point to do a reading? Uh, it does, and um, well, I could uh, I've selected two places, and I could read just a little bit from uh, the older Lonnie talking with his mother. And this is the phrase where she uses the phrase about salvation, mm-hmm. uh, and then maybe I could go back to more of the lyrical stuff later uh, with uh, Bertrand in the woods. Um, oh, there's a lot yes. of uh, lyrical things here. Uh, So uh, this is uh, Lonnie. He's in his early 30s. And I think, uh, actually, the text sets it up uh, pretty well. I'm a redeemer, he kept telling himself. But what was a redeemer? He was driving on a narrow asphalt road that curved up and down through the wooded hills. The road was unfamiliar to him, and he wasn't sure any longer that he was on his way to Woodbine. Six months earlier, in the winter of 1973, his mother sent a telegram asking him to come home from California, and against his will, he drove back to the south, to Atlanta, to Cabbage Town. Eileen had contracted brown lung disease and had become bedridden. It had been coming on a long time, she admitted, starting with Monday fevers, a reaction to the lint-filled air of the mill. She paid it no mind, suffering the tightness of chest, the coughs, and the wheezing. She had to work, she said, but over the years the cotton dust scarred her lungs irreparably. One evening, as Lonnie tended her, spooning broth to her mouth 
as she lay propped up by pillows, he ventured to mention news that he had read that day. Typically, they talked little because breathing was difficult for Eileen, and when she did speak, it was about the church, the mill, or the Bible topics that he did, that did not interest him. Mama, do you remember Mr. Venable from Talmadge? Eileen's eyes widened. She coughed. He wiped spittle from her chin. Well, he died. Her face tightened, and she tried to speak, coughed again before she found her voice. Where'd you hear? Read it in the newspaper. He was new to reading the newspaper. He bought it daily at the grocer on Carroll Street, and paging through it helped to pass the time. It reported heavily on the mayoral race, where a brash young black man was challenging the sitting mayor, a white man. But what caught his attention that morning was an obituary, Venable. He overlooked the article at first, taking scant notice of the portraits of the dead that decorated the pages. Then, in sudden familiarity, he came back to the article. Mr. Venable, his heart thumped excitedly as he read, he hadn't known Venable's first name, but now to see it spelled out and to see the name of Talmadge County brought a rush of recognition. He would have gone to tell his mother right away, except that she had been sleeping. Eileen adjusted the oxygen canoe, pushing it deeper into her nose. What killed him? Old age, I guess, didn't say. She grunted, closed her eyes for a moment. How old? Lonnie left the room to find the article. When he returned, Eileen seemed to sleep again, and he studied her face. Venable had been 74, old enough, and his mother had not yet turned 60, though the disease made her look a decade older. When he got up to go, the wicker chair squeaked, and she opened her eyes. I remember, she said quietly, he owes us a dog. At first, the statement seemed amusing, and Lonnie smiled. Then he remembered the tomato slips and the sick feeling came to his stomach. Often he thought about the murders, but for some years living in the Haight-Ashbury with its perpetual psychedelic distractions, he had become more, they had become more figments than real events. The memory of Venable made them real again, and he saw in his mind, as if it had only been a short time before, the man's crooked yet threatening smile. I've forgiven, though, Eileen said with a wheeze. Lonnie sat again in the chair. He looked at Eileen's hands, still strong, but with bony fingers that had reddened and clubbed from the disease. For what? I don't. He felt a hot rush run from his chest to his face. Neither Venable nor Jax. I hope they both burn in hell. Eileen looked at him a long moment. Forgive and forget. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, she paused for breath, our Holy Father will forgive ye also. But, Mama, after what they did, you couldn't be lying up here now. That's my journey, she said at length. She held out her hand to him and took it, feeling the bulbous fingers pushed gingerly into his. It was my journey to salvation, Lonnie. God has his ways we don't comprehend. 
He wanted to crush her fingers, but held still. They said something about you, Jackson, that Crookshank woman. They took our house and, and they chased us here. Yes, they wronged us. She patted his palm and took her hand away. I was bitter many years, but I'm grateful now that I found salvation. That he redeems us is truth, but redemption is just the journey. Salvation is what we want, Lonnie. She coughed deeply, and he waited and cleaned her mouth when the fit had passed. They wronged us. God is greater. I know this now, though. I didn't then. I want salvation for you, too, son. It would make me so happy to see you give him, give yourself to him before I pass. It would make me so glad to see you become an instrument of the Lord. They took Bertrand. I saw them. They took Bertrand and his wife, and they shot them dead. How can I forgive them for that? She was quiet for a while and looked out of the window. Ragged children played hopscotch on the sidewalk across the roof line of the houses and the brick chimneys of the mill towered. I don't know about all that. Besides, that wasn't our business. Mama, it was. Unable to speak, she shook her head vehemently. Bertrand was our friend. He helped us. He was in the war with Daddy. He was Daddy's friend. She shook her head again, cleared her throat with a huff. It was never, never our business. Whatever happened, Bertrand brought it on himself. I pray for him, I do. But my soul is clean of all that, Lonnie. So is yours. She took a deep, cloudy breath. No more talk of it. It will rock you. Now what I'm worried about is your eternal soul. Repent of your sins, Lonnie. There is room in his grace for you. You must forgive, forget, and accept our Savior's grace. It was all hogwash to him, and he wanted to tell her. Besides, what were his sins? What did he need to repent of? He was no thief or liar. He was no killer. And that was a bit of an exchange between Lonnie and uh, his mother uh, towards the end of the book. Uh, it's beautifully read of the two of us. I think you, in fact, have the better radio voice. Uh, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> several things come to mind. One is, uh, you know, there are a group of powerful, powerful matriarchs in this novel as well. We didn't really get into them necessarily in setting up the structure and the points of view, but they're very much a part of the narrative as well, as we hear, mm-hmm. as we hear in the voice of Lonnie's mother. And you're juxtaposing her hope, her hope that her son can be, can find salvation, can find absolution perhaps as well, versus the way the past is still haunting him, unrelentingly so, so much so that his his mother's words don't even penetrate that. But um, it's a beautiful scene, one of many beautiful scenes. And I want to get to the other one too. We'll we'll, uh, get to that moment in just a second here. But before, um, before we began the reading, you mentioned that in your mind, we are having some conversations right now in this country that are perhaps not entirely in vain. 
And I want to circle back around to that as well. Do you imagine that those conversations are being had on a national level in a moment when we're living in an age where it's become essential to reinforce the belief that black lives matter? Or do you see them happening more on the scale of the, of the conversation you just read, intimate and small between family members or community members or churches or schools or, or both of those things? Where, where are those conversations happening in your mind, Tony? Well, in, in my mind, of course, uh, you know, as a, as a professor, I, I can't assert that I have researched it, uh, but um, uh, it seems to me that the really important ones are the ones that happen on the intimate scale, and mm-hmm. they have been going on for some time. I, you, know, you, you, you come across uh, 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 people who really do have, as, as I call it, not... Uh, not race redemption uh, events, but race conversion uh, events mm. where there's some mm-hmm. under, deep and emphatic understanding of other people. And it really works both ways. It's not just the white problem. It's, it's everybody's problem. Uh, but having a, a, a very, and I would say spectacular, I think we're in, um, is it 55 days in some cities that people have been protesting now? I believe but, so, uh, yes. Yeah. But to have this kind of uh, major uh, upheaval in cities over Black Lives Matter uh, does raise the level of conversation so that I think that uh, people are beginning to have these conversations across dinner tables and uh, oh, there's, there was an article in the New York Times, and I was joking recently uh, with a, a fellow about it, and, and the article, the, the title of it was something like, uh, When Black People Are in Trouble, um, uh, White People Form Book Clubs. <laughs> and, and so we were laughing about that because I was appearing at a book club. Uh, and uh, uh, But my take on that is maybe that's where people start. Uh, and uh, if my book can play a role in starting there. But the conversation, mm-hmm. of course, ultimately has to get to that difficult point uh, where you sit down and talk with others, uh, talk across racial, gender, sexual orientation, uh, and all other kinds of lines of difference, uh, and try to uh, reach out to people, not necessarily always to agree with them, uh, but to see them, and and you know, and we we all have our prejudices, you know. Um, from my perspective, it might be uh, a political prejudice, uh, hard uh, hard to understand some some political points of view. Uh, and right now, hard to understand why those people are wearing masks. But uh, uh, but um, uh, that too, you know, we have to. Uh, uh, reach out and try to be empathetic to people, and, and again, not always to agree, uh, uh, but to uh, uh, but to understand and to and to appreciate uh, who people are and what their experiences experiences have been. Uh, we lost uh, John Lewis uh, last week, and uh, for the longest time, uh, he's been the only one using this phrase, the beloved community. Uh, it was a phrase that Martin Luther King borrowed from, and I forget uh, who originated the phrase, but Martin Luther King used it a lot. And then it kind of fell out of favor, except for John Lewis. 
uh, he uh, would talk about the beloved community. And what is the beloved community? It's it's um, it's it's not paradise. It's it's just a place where uh, people put in place uh, fair, just institutions to mediate their differences, and they try to reach out across those lines of difference uh, in order to see each other uh, as uh, as human beings. So it it um, it doesn't necessarily wipe away all the problems but it creates a, a peaceful and just uh, uh, way in which we can solve the problems. Mm-hmm. But it it's requires engagement. It's active rather than passive as well. And, and that's, you know, I think something that often gets lost, as you say, in this sort of book club mentality where the, the solution to racism is to go by whatever has been recently listed as the, the anti-racist book of the moment, and maybe that book never leaves the bookshelf, although Umberto Eco has some wonderful things to say about the value of the purchased but unread book on the bookshelf. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, still, it's, it's still not the active, it's still not the move toward an action. And, and John Lewis was so good about being in the middle of things, being a, a positive, mm-hmm. visible presence, uh, which is you know, how I encountered him, never at political events, always at literary events, always at events for, for March, his graphic novel mm-hmm. trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, which has uh, was wonderful to see him using literature, using writing, using art in this case, uh, uh, by virtue mm-hmm. of it being a graphic novel, as a tool of active engagement. Isn't that what we hope happens yeah. with books, that they, they don't just get purchased and put on shelves, but people actually do something with them? Uh, that is what I hope happens with my books. And of course, it is you know, a, a big hope kind of like a Grimm's yeah. novel at the end, you know, <laughs> where the characters are struggling to hope, but, but yeah. nonetheless, uh, you know, that I think is the, the thing that, that uh, uh, it, it gives such, uh, it gives great purpose to writing. And, and I think that mm-hmm. there's, you know, there's also a good deal of value in just writing to entertain. But if you can, Mm. write and actually change behaviors uh, that is uh, that is even more powerful I think and, and wonderful and rewarding mm. I think that's the hope of, of many a writer and certainly many an, an artist and it was uh, Mr. Conroy's experience a number of times to mm-hmm. write the truth about a subject or a person or mm-hmm. a conflict and have that situation change, perhaps not just because of his book, but because of the conversation mm-hmm. that book became a part of. And I, I want to mm-hmm. quote something you said. It's a short quote, but I've remembered it. And it's uh, something you said that I believe is something you use with your own students uh, at one of the panel discussions we had done. You said literature functions. And that has sort mm-hmm. of hung with me. Yes. Uh, is that something you use in your classes? And if so, what, what do you it, mean by that? What do you... it, it is. It is something I've used in in what we call a core course, this is a, one of the uh, the courses that um, all students are required to take, and it's a, a world literature course. And what I'm trying to show in that course is how we use stories to give ourselves identity and and to understand the values of our society. And, uh, and these stories are sometimes quite literary, and sometimes they're just uh, folk stories or anecdotes uh you know and i start with uh, (laughs) 
George, you know, this is my my Virginia roots. You know, George Washington threw a half dollar across the Potomac River. Uh, and, of course, he couldn't have done that because the Potomac River is about two miles wide outside of Mount Vernon. And there were no half dollars <laughs> when he was a child. But what is that? What I ask my students, well, what is that story telling us about George Washington? And then mm-hmm. also telling us about the values that we want in a leader. Uh, and so we have that discussion, and that is part of the way that literature is functioning. And, and in my uh, world literature course, we go to, you can't go all around the world. It's kind of an impossible course to teach if you taught it exactly as it's described because it's, it's uh, you know, 45 centuries of literature <laughs> from every culture that ever produced uh, literature. Uh, but uh, in uh, typically I will uh, do some Irish literature, some uh, uh, Southern African literature, maybe some Japanese literature as well, uh, and um, and some classical uh, Greek literature, and try to uh, to show how these stories work. Sometimes quite politically, the uh, mm-hmm. the Aeneid is really a, a political track. Uh, created by Augustus Caesar uh, uh, to uh, to support his reign. Uh, though, on top of that, it's a it's a fun story <laughs> with, a, with a lot of uh, things going on and and a little sex to boot. Uh, uh, but ultimately, <laughs> yeah, you got to have sex, I mean, sex and violence. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean that's how you keep the interest of freshmen. <laughs> uh, but. No, uh, but nonetheless, uh, literature does does function. Uh, you know, it entertains, but it also tells us something about ourselves, uh, particularly mm-hmm. the stories that persist. Uh, they they tell us who we want to be, who we uh, idealize ourselves, or what our uh, spiritual beliefs are. It's it is the work of literature to show us who we are and also who we aspire to be and, and may one day become. And, uh, you know, I think that was in part the reason that John Lewis uh, and Andrew Aiden, his co-author, were so compelled to do the March series. But we've lost uh, another figure from that era, too, who also had a, a literary legacy, and that's our friend Connie Curry, who I wanted to talk mm-hmm. just a little bit about, too. Yeah. Uh, because you don't, you don't know this, and I didn't realize you don't know this, but Connie was one of uh, the early readers I used in the vetting process for Vain Conversation, and she thought very highly of the novel and was, was incredibly helpful to the uh, selection process and the editorial process. I, I owe much to her. She's my fellow Lillian Smith uh, Award winner. Uh, yes. Way back, uh, which I think was Trouble No More, so it was mid nineties with silver silver rights was was her book. Uh, mm-hmm. and we uh uh we didn't know each other very well, but there was a time for a couple of years uh, she was living not far from me and uh and we would um go visit classes together and see each other at literary events and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. But uh yeah, I I very much appreciate her and her really strong uh, civil rights legacy. Um, she was um, on the front lines from the beginning. She was. Uh, she put herself at risk um, in person mm-hmm. and then later on the page as a, as a mm-hmm. good writer should. Yeah, a, a wonderful, mm-hmm. wonderful human being in my life as well. 
Uh, I want to give you a, a chance to read another passage from the book. Uh, and, I want, and to do that, I want to mention something for our audience that we've not yet mentioned, and that is you are a poet, among other things. That is also a, a skill set that you bring to the table. Here in, in Beaufort, we've had um, folks like Ron Rashdown, who, who write short stories and novels and poetry, and, and Jill McCorkle, not that long ago, Jill was down to um, give a talk, and she is known for both novels and short stories. And someone in the audience during Q&A asked her if being good at one helps her uh, in any way with the other. And she said, you know, seemingly off the cuff, although I love this line, she said, writing a novel has as much in common with writing a short story as writing a short story has in common with baking a cake, which is to say not very, not very much other than being a creative act. Uh, so mm-hmm. I wonder, in your case, I mean, you've, you've done all of these things as well, short stories, novels, and, and poetry. Does one skill set bleed into the other? Does one interest bleed into the other for you? My answer to that is yes and no. Uh, uh, in some ways, writing another novel is, is different from writing the first one. It's baking a cake. <laughs> uh, in, uh, or, or writing another short story. It's... Uh, it's uh, uh, each is uh, a process of exploration and experimentation, uh, and you're dealing with different characters and a different voice for the stories, and, and how all those fit together uh, is uh, is different each time. Uh, but there is a way in which, uh, particularly reading poetry, I think, informs uh, prose writing just on the level of sentence. Um, uh, this was a lesson taught to me by my mentor, Richard Bausch. And we, we mentioned mm-hmm. R- Ron Rash. Uh, we've known each other for a long time as well. Uh, I remember when when we were both sitting at an auditorium with our little poems and stories, and, and, then, uh, and then he went off and became famous. But nonetheless, um, um, uh, Richard Bausch uh, emphasized uh, to uh, to me and to his students that uh, reading poetry was especially important for short story writers because it was about mm. the control of language uh, and mm-hmm. ringing out of language uh, every possible nuance that you, you could. Uh, and so I've always felt that uh, uh, poetry reading uh, is um, has informed my prose writing, although in terms mm-hmm. of structure, I think Jill is right. Uh, you know, each each thing is its own thing, and you got to go out and beat it into shape. Uh, you know, Pat Conroy was in the habit of reading poetry for an hour before he wrote a word of prose on a writing day. Mm-hmm. So I think you would agree wholeheartedly with Richard Bausch mm-hmm. on that. Mm-hmm. Very much in his practice. But in your writing, it shines through in, in the lyrical quality uh, that I see. I mean, I see a poet's hand uh, very often in these descriptions. And I think you've got a passage that speaks to that. I'm going to warn you, we've got about uh, 12 minutes left right now. So um, uh, let's do a reading, but I, I want to circle back and cover a couple more things after too. Okay, this is my 30-minute reading. Then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, if okay, I go over is, uh, again, Bert Pam has to give me a two-hour show next time. So let's try to uh, avoid There that. you go. <laughs> uh, so, so this is from Bertrand Russell. Oh, Bertrand Russell. Uh, uh, 
Johnson. I know because I, I was thinking of Bert, Bertrand Russell when I named this character. Uh, this is um, I wondered Bertrand Thompson's point of view. Um, the sunlight filtering through the canopy caught Bertrand's attention as he walked the path, hoe on shoulder, to the Henson place. It was the spring after Wayne Henson's death, and he was helping the widow and the boy to put in a garden. As he walked, he noticed that the leaves changed the color of the light, myrtle green in the shade. Suddenly they were emerald and radiant, just like the jewel. He had seen this color in a movie in Atlanta. It was just before he was sent to Camp Claiborne. He and his cousin, John Robert Thompson, had paid their money in front and followed the signs around the side of the building and up the winding concrete stair case to the balcony. He had climbed slowly, he remembered, admiring the building's striped brickwork and arabesque design. John Robert had wanted to see this movie. He explained that he wanted to see it for years. It was a classic book. It was magical, something he wanted his school children to see one day. It was 1942, and Japan had attacked the country. Both men had decided to join the army. It was their duty, they felt. John Robert was the older, 31. He had a teaching degree from Morris Brown College, and he had been teaching in Atlanta for nearly six years. At 22, Bertrand had just graduated and was teaching with a teaching degree from Fort Valley State. Teaching was a good profession for a black man, much less a teaching job in a big city. So Deacon, John Roberts' father, and Bertrand's older cousin had argued with the younger men about the decision. It's a white man's war, Deacon had said. All wars has ever been were for the white man and for the rich white man at that. Being young and game for adventure, he and John Roberts saw it differently. Quietly, they said their goodbyes to Bethany and traveled by bus to Atlanta to get inducted. When he had been teaching, John Robert had had a room not far from the university complex, but then for a few days before the induction, they shared a room at the Butler Street YMCA. Inside the movie house was decorated with an arabesque, like an arabesque fantasy, reminiscent of pictures he had seen in the Bible. Bertrand remembered the ceiling was made to look like a starry night. He had traveled, uh, he had marveled aloud at it. The movie was a children's movie full of witches and midgets and flying monkeys, but it had moved him. He still couldn't figure out exactly why. The singing was good, and he always enjoyed good singing, but the story was too fanciful. Nobody could survive a tornado, and there wasn't any kind of magical land unless it was heaven. Oz wasn't heaven, or else the girl wouldn't have wanted to come home. He remembered how his nose had stuffed up and his eyes watered when the little girl got home. There's no place like home, she said. This was true, Bertrand thought. No place in the world like Georgia. No place in the world like a crow's nest in, like, in a Jim Crow movie house. He had been going to be a soldier in the U.S. Army, but that didn't make a difference to the white man who took the ticket at the Fox Theater and directed him to the crow's nest. The emerald-colored city had glowed so green, and the light coming down through the trees 
had that same hollowed glow. The light fell in patches on the dried leaves and stands of fern. Lichen-mottled stones lay about as if arranged by angels. When the breeze came, everything danced. The branches, the light, the ferns. The light on the rocks made them seem to undulate like a belly dancer. The leaves made the music. He took in a deep breath, so deep a pain shot across his sternum. This dancing, green and yellow of oak and elm and sassafras and sumac, was Talmadge County, the music of breeze and bird song and the distant tinkling of the creek was home. That was that for time. <laughs> that was fantastic. Good, good enough that Pam has gifted us a few extra minutes if we do end up oh, uh, great. going long here. Yes, see? So you keep every time you read, I get a few extra minutes added on. So we can do that one more time. <laughs> It's a beautiful love letter to to Georgia, to nature. It's a beautiful love letter to language, for that for that matter, Tony. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, one one of the things that I've often thought about when we talk about the Great Migration, and of course, there's a very famous book about it, uh, 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 which in some ways suggests that uh, the blacks who left the Deep South fared better in some ways. Uh, than those who stayed, and the question always was, well, why did people stay? Uh, and uh, and I think that this connection to the land uh, was mm. one of the reasons. And certainly, I think that was true of my family. We were in the Upper South, which now my brothers call the Middle Atlantic, but it's <laughs> I keep telling them no, it's <laughs> it's the South. And and, yeah. and and my Deep South son thinks it's the North. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> But, but uh, nonetheless, uh, um, uh, there is a connection, and I, I still very much, having grown up in a rural setting, feel very much connected to to land, uh, to the topography, the sky, mm-hmm. the starry nights, etc. How long have you been in Georgia? How long has that been home? Oh, it now it's been more than half my life, something like 30, mm-hmm. 30 uh, 34 years, 35 okay. years, maybe. Mm-hmm. I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, time, time keeps a flying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, the other thing that struck me about that passage, uh, which I, which I did not think about in the course of reading the book, but it certainly comes to mind in the course of hearing you read from it is that that moment, uh, that sense of community and home that Bertrand has, is juxtaposed later in the novel with the a sense of being untethered and homeless and placeless that, that Lonnie has when, when he mm-hmm. is, uh, when he leaves that place, when he feels disconnected to it, when he can't resolve mm-hmm. the way that the past of what happened there is still haunting him. And that was very much the sense I got from Clinton Adams's story mm-hmm. uh, that mm-hmm. uh, the, that something severed that he had somehow become uh, restless and and wandering. You've mentioned the uh, the Upper South origins of, of your earlier life, um, and I came to know that part of your history, that part of your story, uh, by virtue of the essay that you wrote for our Prince of Scribes for the Pat Conroy anthology. Mm-hmm. Because you, uh, which is a fantastic essay, I teach from it. I use it in, in a lot of my life oh, learning wow. classes, too. 
and, and, and that essay and the one by Valerie Sayers, who will be on the, the show a couple of months from now, mm-hmm. I both use as good models of how to write an essay above and beyond what's in them, above and beyond content, just the structure of them mm-hmm. uh, both, I think, is brilliant. But in that essay, you talk about uh, being a freedom of choice student in, in Virginia mm-hmm. and uh, the way that that will later on sort of inform your your um, your reading and ultimately your viewing, too, of, of Pat's book, The Water is Wide, and the film that was based on that. Mm-hmm. But you talk a little bit about uh, freedom of choice, particularly for audience members who may not be familiar with that, that um, subject or that time period. Yeah, so this is now uh, uh, 10 or so, 10 or 12 years after Brown v. Board. Uh, actually, mm-hmm. I think 12 years after Brown v. Board. And there's been various kinds of resistance in the southern states to integrating schools. And one of them was this uh, brilliantly named idea, freedom of choice, where parents freely chose which school system. Remember, these counties had a black school system and a white school system, which was ultimately run by a white superintendent. Um, So parents could freely choose which which, uh, uh, school to send their children to. And, of course, no sensible white parent was going to send uh, the child to a, a inferior, under-resourced uh, black school, and uh, and then there was subtle pressure put on um, uh, the black parents not to send their children to the white schools. Uh, but my father was uh, encouraged by one of the uh, local education activists, a woman named. Alberta Guy Despot, and one day he came to me and he said, uh, sticks and stones might break your bones, but words will never hurt you. You're going to go to white school. <laughs> and that was that. So I'd like to say I didn't freely <laughs> choose it. Uh, but uh, it, it was but freely chosen was, for you. It was chosen for me, yes. And, uh, mm. But I understand why. Uh, and this was uh, my, my parents, I think, wanted to, get the best education they could for their children. And they realized that, that uh, it was uh, better than what we had at the time. Uh, and later I would realize that because it was also a rural school, that it wasn't as good as schools two counties away in, in Metro Washington. Fairfax uh, mm. County, which is considered one of the best school systems in the country, uh, was within you know, an hour and a half's drive. Uh, but... Um, uh, that was the experience. So, uh, so it, it opened my eyes in a lot of ways um, uh, to issues around uh, race. But growing up black in essentially de facto Jim Crow, uh, one's eyes were always open to issues around race. Uh, this just mm-hmm. uh, comes with uh, with who you are and where you are. We're. Were you one of a, a handful of freedom of choice students that that first year, or were there uh, large numbers? Yeah. Give, give me some sense of scale. Uh, yeah, so that fir- very first year, as, and I can only talk now about the sixth and seventh grades. Uh, there were some high schoolers as well, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, the sixth and seventh grade, there might have been. Ten of us who started, and then it dwindled down until there were maybe five of us. I was the only boy in uh, my grade, my um, my classroom. 
Uh, and that's the way it seems to me for the rest, for the next three years, that I was the only black boy in any situation. And there was, a, and, the, and the other black person was a, a, a black girl that I knew, uh, had known before we started that experience. Uh, so very, yes, very few black students. My sister was in the fourth grade this time, and she also had that experience. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. My parents started my brother when he was um, uh, in the third grade, but it didn't it didn't work out, and it didn't work out because his teacher couldn't accept him. Uh, whereas uh, my sister and I were pretty lucky that we just, who accepted us, um, and uh, some of them were women who had just gone through. Uh, the gender integration of the University of Virginia. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so they kind of knew you know, from that perspective what we were going through. And I look back on that time, and um, whereas there were one or two um, teachers that probably weren't real happy with, uh, with us, I would say that by and large the teachers were pretty fair. Um, I remember when we were being spitballed, uh, on the bus that uh, finally got the courage to go to the principal about it. And he, you know, he's, he's tall, bald-headed man who was ancient, probably 35 at the time. <laughs> and, uh, and I just remember he, he, I mean, he, he stood up in this elegant way from the desk and he said, not in my school. Uh, and he put an end to it. Uh, so, uh, so in many ways, looking back on it, even though there were some rough spots and a lot of, you know, there was a lot of name calling uh, and uh, they didn't break my bones, but they sure hurt. Uh, but mm-hmm. nonetheless, um, mm-hmm. um, uh, my sister and I said this a few years ago, you know, all in all, when we look back on it, it wasn't a, a terrible experience, particularly uh, when you compare it to say Little Rock or something like that. We didn't have to have policemen <laughs> got us around through, through our, um, to our classes, and we actually made acquaintances, uh, and that's a, a whole different story. You know, they were acquaintances at school, but of course, you could never go home with them. Uh, but uh, uh, and it was an important experience. I, I, I don't think I would have traded it for for anything. It also contributed, I think, to some sense of alienation uh, in my youth. Um, uh, because I, particularly after 1970, when the schools fully integrated, I I felt I was between a rock and a hard place, and and really had no particular place uh, in in mm-hmm. the school. It was a complicated moment in in a social history, an education history, and and you know I don't mm-hmm. think enough true stories of those lived experiences have been shared yet. So I'm, I'm always deeply moved when I encounter one, as you shared in your essay and as one you're sharing right now. Um, and, and what you said about having uh, teachers with a strong sem- sense of, of empathy to those students, to those freedom of choice students, mm-hmm. you included being sort of central to to making that even possible, even even uh, palpable. That was a, a role that Pat Conroy played at Buford High School as well. And he had graduated from the Citadel in 1967. And 1968, in his second year of teaching at Buford High, the same Buford High he went to as, as a student before college, 
after uh, the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the freedom of choice students at Beaufort High, who Pat, uh, you know, tried to quantify as being 100 of them, I don't think there were quite that many, but a significant number, approached him about creating a student organization, the Afro-American Culture Club, uh, which he ready, readily agreed to be a faculty sponsor for, but he wanted to incorporate it into the curriculum as well. So Pat approached the school principal about creating uh, what he always described as the first African-American studies class taught in any school in the state of South Carolina, any public school. I don't know if that's true. It may very well be true, but the principal at the time uh, said, sure, you can, you can create that class if white students will sign up for it, which I think was a way of saying no without actually having to say no. But Pat, the young, handsome, liberal teacher, had been so popular with his white students the year before that two of them did sign up to create this class. So in 1968, mm -hmm. Pat did get to teach that class at Buford High, um, you know, which I'm sure was very meaningful to those students. I'm sure, and I know it is because I've met several of them, both the white students and the black students from that class, who talk about, about what that meant to be seen and valued by a teacher and by extension by a school in that moment. Um, which was mm -hmm. still what two two years before the high school was fully integrated. So I, yeah, I want to brings us back oh, to. Oh, just ahead, quickly, please. just brings us back to this idea of individual engagement, uh, and mm -hmm. uh, you know we can we can have the great rhetoric, but uh, until the individual reaches out to another individual, we haven't made much progress. Mm -hmm. it, the, the conversations that aren't in vain seem to be the ones that happen one-on-one -on -one more often than mm -hmm. not. Uh, I want to, we've, we've got, uh, according to Pam, five, maybe maybe even a few more than five minutes left. And I want to take up two topics that we haven't about, about your reading life. One is where it begins and two is where it is now. So I'd love mm -hmm. for you to talk about sort of at what point did you cross the threshold? At what point did becoming a writer really become a dream and ambition for you? Oh, that's difficult to say because uh, <laughs> uh, I was lucky enough to have parents uh, who encouraged reading. My mother taught me to read when I was four or five, and then she said, now mm. teach your sister. And, and so I was a teacher at four or five. I don't think my sister learned very well, though, but, <laughs> but nonetheless. Uh, just in case she's listening, I need to inform her of that. Uh, uh, so uh, reading was valued uh, uh, in my household. Uh, if you were reading, you got to get out of chores. And, and uh, so uh, uh, I did that, and I think, uh, I think I was in the, oh, yeah, I was in the third or fourth grade when I wrote my first story. And uh, and it was also my first rejection, <laughs> but but, none, but nonetheless, um, uh, and and my parents, uh, uh, you know, my 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 dad is still living. He's ninety four, and he's um, he he takes a mild interest in my writing. He's not rah rah, you know. My son's a writer, but he'll ask him, "How's your book doing?" or something like that. But he allows for it still, you know. He's weird writing son, um, and uh, <laughs> and that's the way my parents have always been. So in some ways, I've I just never turned away from writing. And sometime, I guess, in the middle of uh, of undergraduate studies, I realized I was not going to be an anthropologist, 
I was in the theater by that time, and I realized I was not going to be in the theater. I'm only here because this is where they're teaching creative writing. And so I was a playwright. Uh, and uh, and then afterwards, uh, <laughs> one thing my dad did say to me that was kind of funny, my graduation from undergraduate school with a degree in theater, he said, four years in this? <laughs> now what are you going to do? And I said, well, Dad, I, I think I'm going to go to creative writing school. <laughs> um, uh, another worthless pursuit. But uh, nonetheless, I think he was very proud that uh, you know, I've gotten a college degree and and uh, I think he is. Um, you know, when when I started teaching, I think he could put a he could put something concrete on it and say, "Yes, my son's a, a teacher." Um, but mm. uh, but they always allowed writing. But it was Dick Bausch who helped me really a, a lot. I was taking courses with him, and he came to me and invited me to the graduate program at George Mason. And I was looking at him, and I said, "Who me?" And he looked at me in a strange way, as if to say, you're kind of stupid, aren't you? And he said, but you are a writer. And then he turned away. And I, <laughs> this is in the middle of a Lum's beer and burger uh, joint. And I just, I was just standing in the middle of the floor. And I remember rushing home to my then girlfriend and saying, Dick said I'm a writer. Dick said I'm a writer. Um, and, and maybe that was the, the moment where you know, the, the ambition Mm. sprung up. Those are big moments when they happen in, in a writing life, when mm. someone who has no obligation to like you or love you or respect you, but who you like or love or respect, mm. values mm-hmm. you as a writer, puts that name mm-hmm. on you. That, that's a, a big moment. Mm. And I've heard uh, you know parallel stories from many writers about the moment that they feel mm-hmm. welcomed into the community mm-hmm. of writers by a writer who's already there, who already has many writers mm-hmm. in her or his orbit. So where has that path led you, Tony? You mentioned earlier that uh, in response to Jill McCorkle's uh, quote about cake baking, that you know, working on one novel has as much in common with working on the next as it would with baking a cake. So what cake are you baking? What, what novel is in progress for you right now? Well, well, this has been another long haul, not 27 years, but uh, uh, getting there. Uh, I'm working on a, a historical novel, Set in 1973, which I really don't consider to be history, but nonetheless, um, it, it involves African American war deserters uh, from the Vietnam War who went to Sweden, and this is a, um, a, a situation that isn't all that well known in the United States. So that about a thousand uh, Americans, about 200 of them African American. Uh, went to Sweden and were welcomed there by then Prime Minister Olaf Palme uh, as a gesture against the Vietnam War. Uh, and so uh, some of them still live there. In fact, um, I had a visit from one of them uh, not all that long ago and just finished reading his memoir about that experience. So my book follows uh, a, a young black man from the Jim Crow South who ends up in a predominantly or well, overwhelmingly white socialist middle way middle way socialist country uh, and how he has to adjust there while dealing with uh, quite a bit of uh, upheaval at home because this is still 73 there's um, there are all kinds of um, uh, we've just had all kinds of of uh, social uh, protest 
and now we're settling into this uh, um, uh, era of underground uh, that are so-called revolutionary groups, uh, militant groups that are uh, uh, working uh, I mean, really all over the world, cause, but primarily to uh, oppose American uh, imperialism and American capitalism. Uh, so he's involved in, in my character is involved in that uh, aspect of uh, history as well. Uh, and I must say this has been a really interesting uh, um, 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 event in history to to research. I, I hadn't known about it until I read a book called uh, uh, Memphis Nam Sweden, a, a very brief memoir by Terry Whitmore, mm-hmm. who had that experience. And where are you in the in this process? Still researching, still writing, or shopping it around? Oh, all, I'm, all uh, I'm about to. Sh- yeah, I'm about to shop it out uh, um, uh, again for the second time. Uh, it is uh, 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 really just proofreading this latest version of it, and we'll hopefully have it in the hands of my agent by the end of the month, which is mm-hmm. what. Eight days a week away. It is not long. No, so, uh, not long at all. <laughs> so we'll see what happens after that. Well, it sounds like a fascinating bit of history and, and one that is uh, unfamiliar to me, as I'm sure it will be with a lot of readers, all the more reason to discover it. And you've given us a hopeful note to end our conversation on, because now we have another Tony Groom's novel to look forward to. So uh, before we close up here, I want to remind all of our, our listeners out there, as I said at the onset, that Tony will be teaching a class for our nonprofit Pat Conroy Literary Center online Tuesday, July 28th. It's a point of view fiction workshop, and you can still register for that through the Conroy Center website or Facebook page or Eventbrite. And I want to thank you, Tony, for this conversation, which has been fascinating, as I, as I knew and hoped it would be. We've been talking about your novel, The Vain Conversation, which I cannot recommend highly enough to all of our listeners out there. Once again, it was published by Pat Conroy's Story River Books imprint and was, in fact, the last book, number 22 of the 22 books in the, in the Story River Project. So thank you so much, Tony, for being with us here today on uh, live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center. Thank you, Jonathan. It's It's been my pleasure. And I will be back with this show once again uh, next month right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thanks, everybody. Take care out there. <laughs>